you guys are having a good Sunday morning today. Because these are pre-recorded, I don't know what the weather's like, but I hope it's a great, beautiful Durban day, and I hope your Sunday started well. But last week, we wrapped up our Abide series with Brad Sarian from Restored LA. He came in and spoke about joy in Jesus, which was just such an encouraging message. And next week, uh, my friend James Lennox from Solid Ground Church in Middleburg is going to be with us again, and he's going to be speaking about glory, immortality, and honor from Romans 2, which Sounds amazing. I haven't heard this message yet, but it sounds very, very encouraging. And what I wanted to do today, kind of between those two messages, is I feel like God's put a message on my heart out of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1 and 3, on a living hope. So let me explain what I mean by that. This could have been you in the past, but I'm sure otherwise we've all had this experience where you see someone at work or a family member or friend or someone in the building you live in or whatever, and they just seem really, really well. Like, you know them. You know what a normal day looks like for them, and they just seem different. There's something different about them. They're abnormally well, full of energy. They've got a glow. Maybe they've gone vegan or something, and they're glowing in the dark now, but they are well. And you see them, and you go up to them, and you say, I don't know what it is you're doing. I don't know what's different about you. I don't know what's changed, but I want whatever it is that you've got. It's kind of like in that Cinderella movie that Disney made years ago. She wakes up in the morning and the birds fly in her room and they help her get changed and there's music playing and everything is going her way. That, that kind of situation. And you go up to them and you say, I don't know what it is you're doing, but let me in on the secret. I want to know what it is that you've got. Is it an exercise regime? Is it a new diet? Have you fallen in love? Have you had a good holiday? If you've got a new barber, give me their number. I want to go to them. I want them to cut my hair. I want it. Whatever it is that you've got, give that to me. And something similar to that happens in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Peter's writing to this group of Christians, to this church that he's pastored and been involved with in the past. And they're going through an intense period of persecution and suffering and hardship and trials. They're facing a whole lot. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them to persevere in the midst of this difficult season that they're going through. And he writes to them to remind them of the reason why, the reason why they have hope even in the midst of this persecution. And he writes and says this in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the people that Peter's writing to naturally or circumstantially don't have a reason for joy or hope. You know, they shouldn't be feeling joyful or hopeful. They should be feeling down or discouraged. They're going through a really hard time. But Peter is saying to them, here for these Christians, even though, you know, they're facing strong opposition, there's danger, there's fear, there's uncertainty about the future, there's real persecution, that they are able to live with a real, substantial, and life-changing hope. So today I really want to answer that question. What is the reason for the hope? that is inside of them, and that is inside of us. When I was a bit younger, uh, like many of you, I was obsessed with Lego. Any Lego heads in the room today? But I would ask for Lego basically for every birthday and every Christmas, and I'm a bit type A, so I would sometimes give my parents like like a Lego manual with things circled, where I'd write down the exact title of the Lego that was on the box, or I'd even give them the serial number so there was no confusion, so that I wouldn't be disappointed, so they would know what to get, so that you know, just everything was clear, clean cut, you know. And 
I think there'd be this nervous build-up towards Christmas where I was hoping that I would get this present, but I didn't know, and I was excited, but I didn't want to be disappointed, and it was this roller coaster of emotions for me as like this six-year-old boy. So what I decided to do is I went on a hunt through my parents' room to see if I could find this Lego. And I went through everything, you know, looking under the bed, looking in cupboards. I went into my dad's underwear drawer, was under his underpants and socks, just seeing if I could find this Lego. And I finally found the presents at the back of my mom's wardrobe. It's kind of behind shoes and clothes and boxes. It was nicely hidden away. And I looked through everything and I found that Lego set that I'd been looking for, that I'd been looking forward to, that I was hoping that I would get. And that meant it was mine. You know, I, I'd been hoping, I'd been positive, I'd been putting out positive vibes, hoping that I would get this toy. But now that I'd found it there in the back of the wardrobe, the, the fact that it had been bought, my parents had gotten it for me, I didn't have to hope without reason anymore. I didn't have to hope in vain. I had a reason for the hope that was in me that I would get this present on Christmas Day because it was there. My hope was tangible. I was holding it in my hands. Yes, I couldn't play with it yet. But I knew that in just a few days' time, my hope would be fulfilled. And here in 1 Peter 3, Peter is writing to the church, wanting them to be prepared and to be able to articulate and explain to those around them the reason why they had hope, even in the midst of a difficult time. Peter is saying to them that in Jesus, we have a reason to live with joy, peace, and hope, and so many other things, even in the midst of difficulty. Even when we suffer, even when we're hurting, even when things are not going our way, and even when we have friends or people around us pointing at us and saying, well, where is your God? You know, why is he not answering your prayers at the moment? Peter says to you and to I that there is a reason for hope despite our circumstances. And he wants all Christians that he's talking to. He's not just speaking to leaders. He's not just speaking to the kind of charismatic and outgoing. He, he wants all of the Christians in the church to be able to Give the reason to explain, to tell others about the reason for the hope that is theirs in Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If this morning we were able to do this, if I was to call you up and put you on camera this morning, and I was to turn to you and I asked you, you know, just saying, we, so many of us have suffered, we, we've gone through hardship, this time of COVID has been a very difficult six-month period for us, and I asked you specifically, to tell the whole church to explain to us how in the midst of COVID, with the struggles that you personally have been facing, if you could share with us the reason for the hope that you have inside of you. What would you say? How would you answer that question? I'd love it if you actually answered that for yourself right now, even if you push pause on this, but just took a second to think, what is the reason for the hope that is inside me in Jesus in the season that I'm facing? Think about that for a moment. Because this morning, I want to help you to answer that question a little bit better. And if you are a Christian watching this today and you're feeling a bit discouraged, uh, maybe you need to be reminded today of the reason for the hope that is in you. I want to show you from 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to show you the hope that is yours. I, I want to show you the real substantial hope that is at the back of the cupboard. It's tangible. It's there. That the reason that we have for real hope inside of Jesus and I want to say for those of you who are watching this, who are not Christians, you're maybe exploring the faith or you're watching this, hoping that I'm going to say something helpful to you today. I want to try and answer this question to you too. I want to try to show you why we as Christians have a value and encouragement and a reason for hope that is inside of him, despite the things that we face. So let's read this passage together from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the kind of passage that we probably need to read through a few times and chew on and think through so that we can really digest what's going on there. But this morning I want to answer the question of what Peter says to us is the reason for the hope that is ours in Jesus. I've got five reasons for you. And the first is this. Our hope is in the historical event of the resurrection. Now I think for some of you, you're like, what do you mean? Uh, You know, I think for a lot of Christians, the resurrection doesn't seem that significant. It's not something we spend too much time thinking about. But here Peter says it's really key. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what does all of that mean? Well, firstly, that is really good news for some of us, and it's actually bad news for some of us. What I mean by that is Peter is saying that our hope is not based on the family or the circumstances that we were born into. So for those of you who were born into a great family, great name, great wealth, great situation, he's saying, I hope isn't in that stuff. Sorry to let you down, but it's not in that. And for those of us who are born into a difficult family, a a tough home life, we had a really hard background story or story of origin. Our our home life was hard. Our circumstances were hard. Peter's saying, I hope isn't in that. I hope is in something else. Our hope is not based on the school we went to or the experiences you've had in life, whether they were good or bad. Our hope is not based on our family name or the network of connections that we've got. Your living hope is not defined by your past pain or privilege. What Peter is saying here is that our living hope is based on the new birth in Jesus. The living hope that he promises us is only found in the new birth. So have you been born again this morning? And we can have that new birth and live in this living hope only because of the resurrection of Jesus. As I said already, many Christians don't think the resurrection is that important. Of course, we want Jesus to rise from the dead, but we don't give too much thought to it. But here in the Bible, and also logically, the resurrection is critical to Christian hope. Here's why. Let me show you why. Paul the Apostle writes this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. 
Paul and Peter are telling us a really important thing here. No resurrection. If, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then that means there is no forgiveness of sins for you. There is no life after death for you. And that we have no reason for hope, this living hope inside of Jesus. Instead, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are wasting our time doing whatever this is this morning. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our suffering, our trials, our difficulties are all in vain. They're pointless and our lives are meaningless. So happy Sunday, Harbor City Church. But there's good news because what he's saying here, what Peter and Paul are saying is that if Jesus Christ not only died on the cross for the sins of the world, but if he was raised from the dead, if he was resurrected, then that means he is who he says he is, that he is God. And not only that, but everything that he taught us is true. And on top of that, the things that he said about it, uh, the promises he made to us are true and that we can trust in them and we can believe in them. And that means that we have hope in him for this life now, but also forevermore. Our living hope is anchored in the resurrection. Secondly, our hope is in our eternal inheritance in heaven. 1 Peter 1 verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. For some of us today, inheritance might be a really big deal. For others, maybe it's not at all. You know, maybe you don't have parents or family members who are going to leave you anything when they pass away, or maybe you just know that it's not going to be a lot. But I, I spoke to a friend during COVID this last long period, and he shared with me that he had lost his inheritance recently. It was a lot of money. It was something that he'd been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, he knew that it would change his life and his family's life, and he'd been counting on it. You know, he, he'd been uh, looking forward to receiving this money. He'd made decisions based on the fact that this was coming his way because this was guaranteed. This was a sure thing. This was his. So he lived as if it was his already, and now it was gone which impacted his life significantly. And I think a lot of us have learned this kind of lesson over the last six months or so, that nothing in this life is guaranteed, that things can change very quickly and things can fade away, and that our plans can be completely scrapped by the circumstances that are out of our control. And this season has probably also shown a whole lot of us that we are living not just for eternity and the things that is to come, but we're living for this life and we've put too much trust and too much hope. We've invested too much into this life rather than the life that is to come. And when Peter talks to us here about our living hope, he speaks about an inheritance in eternity that cannot be taken away from us. You see, in this life, we can, and some of us have experienced this, we, we can lose jobs. We can lose money. Our, our dreams can die. We can lose relationships. We can lose family members. In this life, we could see these plans we've made never materialize. In this life, we might have to deal with really hard realities, things we never thought we'd have to face, things that are outside of our control. But Jesus here is promising us an eternal inheritance that he says that is protected by God and cannot be taken away from us. This will never fade away. It is a sure thing in heaven, kept aside, protected for you and I. Now, my wife Michelle's dad, John Potter, was an amazing man. Uh, he became a Christian in his late teens and the stories I've been told, you know, he was always obsessed with heaven. He, he thought about heaven a lot. It's one of his favorite themes to study and to preach about. He was a pastor and a preacher for many, many years. And when he was diagnosed with lung cancer at the age of 57, about eight and a half years ago, it was obviously a very hard time for him and for our family. But Shell said to me that she remembers this one time that he said to us, guys, what is the worst thing that can happen? I die and go to heaven. 
Now, honestly, I, I find that statement a little bit jarring. I, I'm sure some of you do too. It's, it's a little bit offensive because I believe exactly what he's saying. I, I believe that is true. But at the same time, it seems so crazy. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that you go, that you go to heaven. No, we, we don't want you to die at all. But what he was saying is that, you know, even though it would be a terrible thing, he would hate to leave us and not be with us. He knows we would miss him hugely. He's saying even though that would be a huge loss for him, that death would be the worst thing. That at the same time, if he died, he would go to heaven and be with Jesus, which ultimately is the best possible thing. There's a song that I've heard, many of you might have heard it too, by David Crowder that started with this snippet from a song from the 50s. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I think that's the tension of this reality. It's true. The worst thing that can happen to us is to die. But, but actually, when that happens, the very best thing happens. That we go to heaven to be with Jesus for all time. Now, we, we love John. We, you know, we wanted him to be here with us, and we miss him desperately. He's been gone for over eight years now. But he was also so, so right. The worst thing that could happen would be for him to go and to be with Jesus in heaven for the rest of time, which is actually the very best thing. Harbour City, this life holds no guarantees to you or to I. The things around us will fade away over time. We can't put our hope in them. But our eternal inheritance that Jesus promises us is being protected and guarded. It will not fade away. It will be yours forever. So our living hope can't be anchored here in this life or in things or circumstances. We need to anchor it in eternity and in our um, inheritance in heaven that will one day be ours. Thirdly, our reason for hope comes from our salvation. Now, I just I want to just grab you for a second and say, please don't lose interest here because I think this is the danger. But point one was about the resurrection. Point two is about our eternal inheritance. And point three is about salvation. And all of those are, are spiritual realities, not tangible physical realities that we can see. This is not a practical message in the way you might think it's practical. But the things I'm saying about the reason for our living hope are concrete spiritual realities. Even though these are invisible things or unseen things, these are completely real. Just like the toy at the back of the cupboard. These are things that are ours in Jesus. And this is the way to find living hope. So don't lose interest just because you cannot see these realities. The resurrection, our eternal inheritance, and our salvation are as real as anything you can feel or taste or touch. 1 Peter 1 verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith. For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And verse 9, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Before I pull that slide down, notice here that both of these verses speak of salvation as a future tense thing. Not, not past tense, not present tense, but future to come. Did you know that your salvation is something that's being worked out in your life? And that there are past, present, and future tense realities to it? You see, in Jesus, we are saved, we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. Whereas the theologians call it justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's how God works salvation out in our lives. Now, to be justified is, is talking about something Jesus has done in our lives already, if you're a Christian. You see, uh, on the cross, Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be washed clean and so that you could receive the righteousness of God. That's this exchange that happened on the cross of our sin for Jesus' righteousness, which means that when God looks at you now, if you're a Christian, I mean right now, even if you've had a bad morning, if you've had a bad week, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ this morning, when God looks at you now, he sees you just as if 
you had never sinned. And just as if you had always obeyed God, that is justification. God sees you perfectly in his son. But we know that we're not there yet. And that's why present tense, our salvation is being worked out as sanctification. We are being sanctified, which means that more and more over time, the spirit is at work in us to change us, to transform us, to put sin to death and to form righteousness in us, to make us more like Jesus. And I know I started going to church when I was 12 years old. I think I really met Jesus when I was about 18. Now I'm 34 years old. As I look back, and maybe some of you need to do this this morning, as I look back, I'm amazed at the work God has done in my life. I'm not saying I'm amazing today, but I'm amazed at the journey that we've been on. Now, all of our stories look different. Some of us have started way further back than others. Some of us had huge advantages in life. But if you look back, why don't you just take a moment just to thank God for the work he has been doing in your life? the work of sanctification, of working out salvation in you, the the hope that comes from knowing that God has got you and he is at work in you. But then the third part of this is glorification. It's the fact that one day Jesus is coming back. One day there will be a judgment. We will stand before God, the Father, the King of the universe. One day there will be eternal realities. And for those of us who are in Christ, one day we will stand before Jesus and in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. We will be made perfect. We will become like him, which means that all of our sins and struggles, all of the the fleshy desires, the ungodly stuff inside of us will be gone and we will be made perfect forever, just like him. You know, the the stuff we don't like about ourselves, the the stuff we pray to change, the stuff we're working on, that stuff will be gone. We will be made like Christ. We will not hurt people anymore with our words or our actions or our deeds. We won't do the stuff we don't want to do anymore. We will be fully and finally like him. This is our reason for hope. It's our past salvation. It's our present salvation. And it's our future salvation. I want to ask you today, have you been saved by Jesus? Fourthly, and this is where we get a little bit more tangible. Our hope comes from the fact that even in the worst possible things that can happen to us, God is at work. He's present, turning those things around for our good. Verse 6 says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. don't know if any of you are suffering grief or facing various trials at the moment. Notice the tension that exists here, though. At the beginning, it says you rejoice in this. There's rejoicing going on. That's present. That's happening now. But at the same time, there's suffering grief and various trials going on. That's also present tense. That's happening now. So we see Both joy, rejoicing, and suffering and trials are going on in the Christian life at the same time, which I think doesn't make sense to most people. You know, I think for most people, what happens is our joy or hope is based on our circumstances. So if things are going well for us, we rejoice, you know, we have hope because life is good. But when things are hard or bad, we can't rejoice. We don't have hope. We just have pain. But what we see here is that we can experience both that simultaneous joy and grief inside of Jesus. You know, a grief that arises from trials, suffering, hardship, the the evil of the world, the brokenness around us, our circumstances, and at the same time, a joy that comes from our faith in our relationship with Jesus and all he has done for for us. Those things can come together. Verse 7, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us here that the trials that we are enduring, the trial you are facing now, the thing maybe you woke up and prayed about this morning, the thing maybe that's making you anxious or tense right now, 
those things are almost a refining fire that we are inside of. It's a crucible that is testing or proving or refining our faith. You see, what these trials do is they expose and reveal the things that are inside of us. You know, under pressure and the heat, it brings all of these things to the surface, the impurities, the sin, the, the idols, the selfishness, the, the pride, whatever ungodly junk is inside of you, it all comes to the surface through these extraordinary circumstances that we are all going through. But what happens is once they've been exposed, once they've come to the surface, you and I have an opportunity, space has been created for us to repent, to respond to them, to, to bring them before God, to deal with them, and to ask Him to cleanse us and free them from these things to make us new. One commentator writes about all of this. The trials burn away any impurities in the believer's faith. What is left when the trials have ended is purified, genuine faith, analogous to the pure gold or silver that emerges from the refiner's fire. Don't you desire faith that's like that? I um, got engaged about nine years ago now, and I remember like just chatting to different guys, getting engaged and getting excited about proposing. And obviously you can do that in a number of different ways. But generally the guys I've spoken to all of a sudden become really interested in jewelry. You know, rings and diamonds and stones and gold and whatever substances they're wanting to make this ring out of. They become experts in that. And I remember chatting to a bunch of friends who'd had rings made and them telling me about the five C's and just what they'd done and why they had. And all of a sudden, these guys who never would normally talk about this stuff are experts and are obsessed with it. And I remember going into a number of jewelers' places, just getting more educated, asking questions, finding out more, and getting that magnifying glass out to look at the, the stones, the diamonds, through the magnifying glass, just to see the purity or the imperfections of the stone to decide would I buy this or not. And the reason I wanted to get a really nice stone, the reason I wanted to get nice gold for shell is because in a way it's not about the ring, but it is that, that ring is a metaphor. It's a symbol of, of what is important, which is our marriage and our covenant and commitment to one another. But I wanted to get shell a ring that represented that, you know, it didn't have to be perfect, but I didn't want it to have big imperfections that were visible to the eye because this was an important thing. And how much more than a ring with our own faith? Should we desire that those imperfections, those impurities would be removed and refined so that our faith would be pure and beautiful to us, to those around us, and to God and His glory? Maybe I can ask you this morning, what impurities in your life and in your faith have been brought to the surface over the last while by the various trials that we're facing? And, and this is key, what are you doing in response to them? How are you responding to those things? You see, Peter lets us know That on the other end of the trial, on the other end of the testing, is a proven, refined, purified faith that God himself says is more valuable than gold. I don't know what you would take this morning if I offered you a lot of purified gold or purified faith. I think maybe some of us would be tempted by the gold. But Peter says to us in God's way of seeing the world, just from God's vantage point, a pure, refined faith is worth more than nearly anything. God uses the trials of life and he uses the very worst things that you and I face for our good. But our response to all of this is key. You see, these trials can either make us better or bitter. So the way you're responding to these trials is really key at this time. Are you being defined by these trials? Are you being shaped by them? Are they impacting you? Or are you bringing them before Jesus? Your own sin, your own junk, what these trials are exposing and welcoming him in and asking you to change him, and taking hold of him for yourself. Lastly, the fifth reason. 
Our reason for hope comes from our relationship with God. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, Peter had seen him, but we haven't. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. This passage here gives us the key to activating this living hope, this promise of hope. And this verse tells us how. How It says we rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because, because our focus or our faith is on him and not on these other things. The reason that we can live with hope and joy in the midst of a difficult world, in the midst of trials and suffering in a global pandemic, is that our deepest joy is found in our relationship with Jesus and not in circumstances and not in things. And get this, that Peter's logic here is this. Jesus can never be taken away from you. Other things will come and go. Other things can fade. They can pass away. They can be stolen. They can be taken away from you. But Jesus cannot. And if you have Jesus, then that inexpressible and glorious joy cannot be taken away from you either. It is yours forever, no matter what you are going through. If you lack hope and joy right now, Peter says, look to him. And he doesn't mean, hey, listen, just take two minutes off of your phone while your mind is still distracted and you've got a lot going on. No, he's saying, give God your best time. Be undistracted. Spend time with him, like designated time, but also throughout the day, be with him. Focus on Jesus. Draw on the life that is in Jesus. Be with Jesus and be changed by Jesus. And you will find a hope and a joy which helps you through whatever you face in life. But let me end with this. Do you know that when Jesus was suffering on the cross and dying for the sins of the world, that his mind was focused on you? Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And Harvest City, I think that is a word for all of us at this point in time. Run with endurance. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't stop because it's hard. Keep going. Persevere. Endure by the grace of God that he gives to you. And then verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's our focus. He's the focus of our faith. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Before the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we read this, we need to ask, well, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was it that he was focused on on the cross? And the answer here that you can read about in Isaiah 53 was he was focused on you and I. He, he was focused on your salvation and mine. As he was dying and as he was suffering, he knew that God was going to use that moment of great pain. He was going to turn it around for good. And that actually you and I would find salvation and hope and new life and joy inside of him because of what he had to endure and go through. And now 2,000 years after that moment, as you and I endure our own suffering and trials, whether that's now or in months, years or decades to come, he says to you and I that we should look to him. And as we look to him and as we endure through the suffering, we will find joy and hope for the struggle we are going through. Harvest City, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? What is our reason for hope and joy even in the midst of suffering? Five things. Because the resurrection has happened. Because our eternal rewards are in heaven and they are guaranteed. Because of our salvation. Because even the worst possible things that can happen to us are being used by God. They're being turned around by God for our good. And because of our relationship with Jesus. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, I ask for everyone watching. I know people are watching with different backgrounds, different stories, even different relationships with you. I ask now, Jesus, that you would be more visible and more real to us. 
And I ask now, Lord, for a very real hope and a very real joy to come upon us. That we would take off our burdens and bring them to you. That we wouldn't be bitten and defined by what we're going through, but you would make us better. That you would pour your joy and your hope into our hearts right now. And that even as some of us face really hard circumstances and really hard things, I thank you that you would give us grace in the midst of our trials to endure, to persevere, to continue. And that you would turn our eyes to see you and that you would reveal your beauty and your kindness and your goodness to us right now. Pray for your help and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.